Welcome back to the emdocs.net podcast. I'm Britt Long, and I'm joined by Manny Singh. You can access the podcast from our homepage on emdocs.net and subscribe in iTunes. We have included a summary of all of these points with respective links for further reading. Manny, what are we looking at today? So we have two COVID-related posts. The first is on hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine toxicity, and the second is on oxygen escalation therapy and COVID. Let's get to our first post on toxicity of HC and chloroquine. We aren't going to delve into the literature behind the efficacy or lack thereof for these treatments. Let's just say the current literature has many limitations, including lack of comparator groups, small sample sizes, and significant biases. Please see the post on April 6 for further information on these medications for COVID-19. These medications can cause in vitro viral inhibition through several mechanisms, but ultimately lead to a change in endosomal pH. When it comes to the pharmacokinetics, both have a high volume distribution with some mild protein binding. The bioavailability is pretty high with hepatic metabolism and renal excretion for both. The half-life of chloroquine is 3-5 to five days, but the half-life for HC is 40 days. All great points, Manny. And the really interesting thing about these medications is their toxicity. Even at therapeutic dosing, there are a fair number of adverse effects. These include gastrointestinal, hematologic, ocular and ear disorders, including retinopathy and blindness, musculoskeletal, metabolic with hypoglycemia, hypersensitivity reactions, and CNS changes with seizures and coma. But the big issue is that these medications, particularly chloroquine, can cause TCA-like effects. Both of these are one pill can kill toxins in kids. Both medications can cause sodium and potassium channel blockade, leading to widened QRS and QT intervals. They can also cause bradycardia and hypokalemia. Ingestions of 5 grams for adults and 1 gram in kids is severe with hypotension, long QRS, and ventricular fibrillation. Signs and symptoms typically begin 1 to 3 hours after ingestion. Respiratory depression is really common. The EKG may show QRS and QT prolongation, as well as AV blocks, ST or T wave changes, and several other changes. CNS symptoms can vary from headache to severe altered mental status. Treatment, like most ingestions, involves primary supportive care, but gastrointestinal decontamination can be considered with charcoal, one gram per kilogram, if the patient is intubated. For those that are awake, you got to weigh the risk and benefits of when the acuity of the ingestion was, as well as how much was ingested, as Britt mentioned. For those with severe toxicity, including apnea, hypotension, cardiovascular collapse, and dysarrhythmias, intubate and provide epinephrine and high-dose diazepam. Combining early mechanical ventilation with administration of high-dose diazepam and high-dose epinephrine have shown benefits with less cardiovascular toxicity. Diazepam may have a central antagonistic effect, anticonvulsant effect, antidysrhythmic effect, and interact inversely to chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine and decrease the chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine-induced vasodilatation. Start IV epinephrine at 0.25 mics per kilo per minute, increasing 0.25 mics per kilo per minute until the goal SPP is greater than 90 millimeters of mercury or a MAP greater than 65. The dose of diazepam is 1 to 2 milligrams per kilograms over 30 minutes, then 1 to 2 milligrams per kilograms per day for 2 to 4 days. This is a large amount of diazepam, so your hospital supply may be exhausted. For a widened QRS, treat with sodium bicarbonate, which may worsen hypokalemia. You can consider giving 1 to 2 milliequivalents per kilogram of IV push in combination with evaluating the patient's degree of cardiotoxicity hypokalemia. 
Potassium replation is tough, but if it's less than 1.9, replate. Our goal is to get normal cholemia. Intralipids do not have any data supporting their use, and VV ECMO may help those who have not responded to other therapies. All great points, Manny, on a really tough ingestion. Our next post deals with something difficult, treating the patient with COVID-19 and hypoxemia. There are several types of patients with COVID-19, those who have mild disease who hopefully we don't see in the emergency department, those with mild hypoxemia and symptoms but do well with therapy, those who are moderately to severely hypoxemic but otherwise appear well, and finally, those with hyperacute progression who decompensate quickly. This is becoming more and more common, especially with that happy, hypoxemic patient. Recent literature suggests our strategy of early intubation may not be beneficial and may result in patient harm. So what do we have that can help these patients? This post provides you with a strategy for escalating oxygen, but Manny, what do we need to do first? PPE is absolutely essential in taking care of these patients. If possible, place these patients in a negative pressure room, but many of us are in a center where these may not be immediately available due to the surge of COVID-19. A room with a closed door will also work, and providers should wear full airborne contact and droplet precautions. Hair cover and eyewear are also vital, especially if placing the patient on non-invasive ventilation or in anticipating intubation. We have a great post on PPE that delves into this, so please check this out on our site. But what do we do, Britt, when it comes to escalation of oxygen therapy? First, if the patient is altered in respiratory failure or has failed other therapies, then intubate the patient. If the patient does not require emergent intubation, we can use a strategy incorporating escalation of oxygen therapy. At each step, look at the patient rather than just the oxygen saturation number. Ask the patient how they're feeling and incorporate the respiratory rate into your assessment. If the patient is not improving and feeling worse, then move to the next step. Start with a nasal cannula at 5 to 6 liters per minute. This provides a fraction of inspired oxygen up to 45%, but this will vary based on the patient's inspiratory peak flow. In a patient with nasal cannula at 5 liters per minute with no surgical mask, the dispersion of exhaled air can reach up to 40 centimeters. Have the patient wear a surgical mask or a face mask, which drastically reduces droplet spread and aerosolization. Next, try a Venturi mask, which provides more precise oxygen delivery between 24 to 60% via an entrapment device that mixes air with oxygen. Up titrate based on patient symptoms up to 60% using specified oxygen flow rates, typically 2 to 15 liters per minute. Dispersal can be 40 centimeters, like the nasal cannula. Similar to the nasal cannula, place a face cover over the Venturi mask to reduce dispersal. If this is not available, use a non-room breather up to 15 liters per minute. The reservoir bags should be inflated to prevent hypercapnia, which typically needs flow rates over 8 liters per minute. Again, cover the face mask if you are using a non-room rebreather. Your third step is to combine a nasal cannula at 6 liters per minute plus a non-rebreather at 15 liters per minute covered by a face mask. If the patient does not improve, go with high-flow nasal cannula. This reduces anatomic dead space, worker breathing, and respiratory rate while increasing positive pressure, compliance, and oxygen flow. Flow rates can reach 60 liters per minute. Studies evaluating high-flow nasal cannula for hypoxemia and COVID-19 and other disease states have found a reduction in mortality and a reduction in the need for intubation and ICU admission. The World Health Organization and Society of Critical Care and Medicine recommend high-flow nasal cannula over CPAP or BiPAP in patients with COVID-19 respiratory failure. 
There was initial concern of aerosolization with high flow nasal cannula, but this has not been demonstrated in the literature. Studies suggest high flow nasal cannula has not been a risk factor for transmission during SARS-CoV-1, and based on a simulation study, dispersal at 60 liters per minute is about 5 to 17 centimeters. However, there might be a risk of viral dispersal with tube disconnection. Start at 100% FiO2 with a flow rate at 20 to 30 liters per minute and titrate up to a maximum of 60 liters per minute if needed. This will be based on patient comfort level. The higher the rate, the more uncomfortable it is for the patient. Keep in mind that this is the opposite of what we normally do as we typically titrate FiO2 second. The post has a link to a great video discussing high flow nasal cannula. The post also discusses the ROCKS index, which is the SpO2 over the FiO2 over the respiratory rate. The scores measured successively at 2, 6, and 12 hours can help predict who will succeed or fail high-flow nasal cannula, but do not dismiss your clinical assessment at the bedside. The fifth step is non-invasive ventilation. If you have access to a helmet device, this may reduce viral dispersal and aerosolization, but many places don't have access to this. Aerosolization is a risk when using non-invasive ventilation, though a tight-fitting mask and viral filter decrease this risk. There is a lot of debate about whether you should use CPAP versus BiPAP, but we recommend CPAP over BiPAP to improve oxygenation and mean airway pressures. Keep in mind that BiPAP is helpful for those with obstructive lung pathologies or cardiac issues. Make sure to use viral filters to create a closed ventilation system. Great points. Lastly, the bottom of the post has some great tips on using a ventilator for CPAP and BiPAP mode, as well as some videos using the impact system. Now is a good time to familiarize yourself with the machines you have in your department. Reach out to your RT colleague and have them show you the ropes. If other measures have not helped, the final step in escalation is intubation. Intubation itself has a lot of nuances. MCRIT has a lot of great resources on it, so check out the link in the post. This rounds out our summary of the key EM Docs posts. Thanks for joining us and stay tuned for our next episode. Feel free to comment on our site and let us know if you have any feedback. Stay safe and healthy, everyone.